Welcome to the Content Bounce House, where content marketing leaders bounce ideas around. I'm your host, Ryan Sargent, and Content Bounce House is brought to you by Verblio, the world's friendliest content creation platform. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Cooper, Content Marketing Director at Evercommerce. Chris, so glad you're here. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's kick it off. Give us a, a short version of the kind of day in the life uh, of your world as a content marketing director. <laughs> Um, I wish that there was like some, some consistency in what, uh, what a day looks like, but I'm not sure that, <laughs> that I can, that I can give you that, um, that clean through line. I don't know. Well, when, when school's in session, I end up taking my kids to school, uh, and then I come to work. So I, I'm usually in my office by nine, nine thirty. Um, we actually have a corporate office that down the street from the office that I'm talking to you from now, but, uh, this was the office I had when I had my own business. and then when during COVID I just kept it. And then when I got hired on it at Evercommerce, um, I never left. So here I am. So I don't actually use our corporate office. I could, it's like literally a half a mile from here, but, um, I, I'm usually in my office by nine or nine thirty. sit down. First things I do open email, um, uh, open Slack, make sure I didn't miss anything. We can get into this later, but I actually sort of do the content strategy for, um, eight of our subsidiary companies and they're grouped in certain ways. And so, making sure that um, I didn't miss anything overnight, lots of people in different time zones and things like that. So just getting up to speed in the, f the first part of the day and then usually you know, jumping into a meeting around 9.30, um, making sure that I'm syncing with sales teams and other um, solution group marketers and um, sort of you know, playing middleman on, on some things and making sure things are moving forward and checking in and where, where I need to. And then... Um, usually have blocks of time throughout my day where I'm actually creating content as well. So again, we can get into this, but right now I don't have a, I don't have a writer on my staff. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of writing or outsourcing things. So um, when I've got things that I need to actually write nurture cadences or, um, you know, long form pieces or other stuff like that, I will block out time for myself to do those types of things so that I um, am not interrupted. In fact, turning off Slack altogether is usually in that mix. So I can actually sit down and, and focus and get things done that way. So I have all kinds of follow-ups now. For, for starters, no writer on staff. How does that affect like the structure, the team structure of, of like the larger content team? Are you, are you flying solo or do you have strategists? The, the, so this is a bit of a, I'll try to unpack this a little bit because I sit on a centralized growth and engagement team as a content marketing director. This team is newly formed earlier this year as of January, February. So what happened was we have so many subsidiary companies that, that need attention that we central, we had already centralized a bunch of other things, design and, and digital marketing and things like that. So ops has been centralized. So this was just another part of centralizing that and, and different teams. And so I was a part of that because because the title that I had, I was pulled into that team. And so the reason I don't have a writer is because we just, we haven't built the team up to that point yet. It's coming and it's going to happen. Um, but in the meantime, um, I'm relying on my own writing skills as a copywriter. And then also if we have internal sources, like I've, I've tapped some of the other teams that have writers that are able to jump in and help me. And in some cases, we outsource some things um, with some freelancers. And so, um, as I mentioned earlier, I had my own business for a long time. And through that, I know a lot of people around Denver and other places where, you know, I know that I can trust people right away, which is usually the hard part of outsourcing things. And so I've got those relationships and I can I can do that pretty quickly if, if, if needed. So it's a mix of all of those things. There's no specific 
structure that that is lacking necessarily other than like this is a newly formed team and we're just kind of building headcount at this point so you mentioned this growth and engagement team is uh centralized and so content very much part of growth and engagement how often are you talking to other teams that are like out at the subsidiaries it, it like is, is digital marketing and sales like which which teams do you have to work with multiples of versus the other centralized folks yeah, I mean, it, I think it depends on what we're doing. So if we're building a campaign, I'm I'm working directly with project managers, um, the design team, the DevOps team in some cases, digi- the digital marketing teams. So all of those, the, the way that we've structured everything within EverCommerce is there are certain people that are assigned to certain groups. And so I'm always working with the same group of people. So I'm I'm doing content, but I, I have one designer from the centralized design team that I work with, or I have one DevOps person from the DevOps team that I work with. And so... It's, it functions as a as a team because we have dedicated people that are working on dedicated accounts, essentially. But that's, you know, it depends on what we're doing. So more often than not, I'm working directly with designers most frequently um, because those two things go hand in hand. Content designer, you know, we're one and the same at this point. So that's the most frequent relationship I have. But we're, you know, if we're building landing pages or we need to do tweaks to the website or whatever, I'm tapping our DevOps person digital marketing's and most of that as well so we're setting up campaigns organic so uh, organic and paid social media stuff so talking to those people fairly frequently and making sure that we're creating consistency across content things like that you read my mind on the next question because i was going to ask you're almost like speaking as though you're taking it for granted that that so many of these other marketing activities represent content and that's something that i've believed for a long time that like landing pages or a paid social campaign like that's part of the same content journey. It, this isn't just about building a blog post that gets organic ter- search traffic. Like content's far right. broader than that. And it sounds like Evercommerce is also thinking that way. Yeah, I mean, I certainly am. And I'm, I I think that's part of the reason why I'm in the role that I am in is um, we're pushing for more and more of that. And, and you know, we face a challenge in that we, we have so many subsidiary groups these solution level groups that that have been brought together in different ways and they're used to doing things in their own way and then trying to come in as a centralized team and sort of do things a little bit differently there's a there's a push and a pull that happens where people need things and they need things quickly so part of my job is to make sure that they're getting those things but also putting systems and processes in place to build towards things that are that are a little more sustainable and so um I'm always thinking about how do we create that consistency. And I, I do think that the content part of it, there are things that I, I say this almost on a daily basis. Like I don't need my fingers to be in every pie of every piece of content that's being created. Like I don't need to touch every piece of sales enablement, but there are certain things that I, that I would like to be at least knowledgeable of so that I can talk about like these things are happening and here's, here's how I know that. But there are also initiatives that I can be driving um, and I'll be more specific. I'll give you an example. I've, I, in the last few weeks, have been making a real effort to communicate to people that I want to own case studies and everybody wants case studies, but those, in my, my, from my perspective, those need to flow through me in one way or another. And part of that is coming from um, the fact that I like writing case studies and, and I think that I do them well. But the other part of it is people don't typically like doing them and they don't have time for them and they're time consuming and what ends up happening is I end up writing a lot of them anyway. And so when someone else has done the interview and then I try to write it, anybody who's been in this position understands it's really hard because there's information that's usually lacking and you, you're not able to fill those gaps because you didn't do the interview. So what I'm trying to build into the process is 
case studies need to flow through the content team. We'll handle the interviews, we'll handle the write-ups, and then I'll send them and coordinate with design, and then they can, you know, approve or deny final pieces. But um, I want them to be very much a part of that, and obviously it's important with that they've got the customer relationship. But I want, from a content perspective, I want to control that process because if I get to do the interview, I know which direction I want to take questions in, and I know that I can fill those gaps myself because I'm always thinking like a writer and how is this going to be presented on a page. So those are things that we're still kind of working through, but some of the stuff that's kind of come up organically through this centralized process. Yeah. And I, I imagine, well, I mean, so first of all, case studies to me are just bottom of funnel content. Like this is the last thing someone yeah. should read before they convert, as opposed to the first thing they're reading many content pieces earlier. I also feel like content marketers are like right at this intersection where you know what kind of content the sales team is looking for when you write those questions or write the case study, because you talk to the sales team. And then at the same time, you can apply a copywriter's eye or collaborate with a designer or like who else is going to do the interview in a way that, that is in the middle of that Venn diagram. That's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there are advantages, I think, to being a, one step removed from that as well. Like I'm obviously going to prep with my salespeople or my customer service people and get the background info that I know. But I think there's value in just getting people to open up to somebody who's not the person that they're normally talking to. And so there's value in that as well which is not necessarily something people think of, but having run my own business for so long, I always use that as, as a, a talking point and like, Hey, let me take this on for you because as a third party, I can not only put a different perspective on it, but also people have a, are more willing to open up in a different way. So there's that too. So the, the running your own business, that's one of the things I was most excited to talk to you about. Cause you, you have all of this experience with freelance writers and now you're kind of owning in-house content. And so yeah. what are what are the things that all of the in-house content marketers desperately need to know about freelancers because they're just getting it wrong? Uh, huh. um, that's a really good and big question. I don't know that I have like a definitive answer, but I'll give you the best answer I can give you, which is I think having been on the other side of it, I know what I needed from people and I know what I didn't need from people. And so I, I want to be efficient, but I want to be good. And so like I prep a brief for an outsourced piece of content in the way that I would have wanted a brief. I know what I was always lacking when people would hand stuff off to me. And and I had a lot of people who gave me really good prep for the work that they were commissioning from me. But I also had a lot of people who were just like, I don't know, just come up with some ideas and write something for us. Like there's middle ground in there that I, that, that I try to live in, which is like, I want to give people a prepared brief that gives them enough direction as to what I'm looking for. Um, but also not be so stifling that they don't have room to go do it the way that they're comfortable doing. And so there's, that was always the thing for me is like too few constraints was never helpful because I had to create my own, but when people gave me enough that I could work off of that. So that's what I'm always looking for. And then I would add to it, like we have an SEO team. And so I'll come up with briefs, send them to our SEO team. They can start to optimize them because I know that the writers that I'm handing it off to, while I trust them entirely, they're not doing heavy SEO research because that's not what they're being paid to do. So if I can feed them some of those things, here's some keywords, here's some phrases that we're, that we're looking to target, um, that's usually enough. I try to provide a very brief outline with, with H2s and things like that. So they have some general parameters for what to write to, but what goes into those 
parameters is up to them. And then obviously I'm, I'm proofing and revising when I, when I get them back. Yeah. I was going to ask, what's the most important thing to put in a brief? Like that, that thing that you kept saying that you, that you kept wanting when you were getting them. And now that you're always careful to make sure you put in. I, I think the thing that gets lost and it's such a simple thing and it, this is going to sound really dumb. You had mentioned earlier before we started recording that we were both teachers. When I was teaching writing, I started every writing lesson with audience and purpose because kids needed that. And that's the first thing that shows up in my briefs as well. Who is it for and what are we trying to do? And that so often gets lost in the, 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 the need to produce stuff or there's a timeline or there's a, you know, the, does the outline right or what, like none of that matters until you've nailed down those two things. And that's the, the, that's the starting point for everything. So it doesn't matter what your theme or your topic or whatever it is. If you can't clearly articulate who it's for and what you want it to do, then there's all, nothing else matters. And so that's where I always start. That is wow. That's exactly the kind of thing we're hoping for on this podcast. That's awesome. I like, <laughs> I had to struggle to not write that down immediately. No, it's a, it's one of those things though. Like it seems so obvious, and it just gets lost if you don't document it. And I think that's it. If you take the time to write the one sentence about purpose, what is the purpose of writing this blog post or this ebook or whatever it is? That is usually enough to get people in the right direction. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I was going to say I, I taught music, and the the analogy for me is like i i had to tell a high school kid he couldn't bring his shredding heavy metal guitar to jazz band like that it wasn't yeah. gonna work like right like it's and and again i think that's like a matter of knowing your audience right that like can't play heavy metal in the wine bar and so yeah it, it always seems to come back to audience because that's how you generate the value so you're building all this content you're outsourcing a bunch of it what do you need to do to get the buy-in with internal teams around this content strategy. And I, and I imagine this is a particularly difficult for you because you're dealing with content strategy for so many different companies. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing that, well, what's interesting to me is I think there's an assumption that people don't want to do it a certain way or that they're stuck in the way that they're doing it. And I think part of my job as a director, as a content marketing director, as I, I have to be a conduit in some senses between our solution groups and, and the other teams that we have to work with. And so I have to, I have to funnel things through in a way that makes sense. But every, once you say things out loud, people seem to be on board with it. I think people know there's a better way to do some of these things. And the, the reality of the day to day kind of traps us sometimes. But when somebody like me can step in and say, Hey, there's a better way to do this. And then I'm actually putting things in place to help facilitate getting those things done. I think that's the thing is like, everybody knows what we could be doing or should be doing or that there's a better way to do it, but they don't have time to do it. So part of my job is to step in and put the things in place to actually make it happen. And so when you can do that and there's some, you know, there's proof in the pudding, right? Like if you can actually get some, some results and do some of those things and follow through and, and put some of the strategy in place or put a new process in place and actually make it simple for people to follow, then I think there's buy-in. I think I, it's like trust, like it's just earned. And there's, it's what I said earlier, there's a balance to strike between giving people what they need and also pushing towards a more sustainable process or a system that you can replicate down the road. Um, 
And also, you know, like there's, there's the idea that if I wasn't here, could somebody else do this? That's what I'm looking at is like, how do I create a system that makes sense for other people, whether it's me or somebody else. And so I think the, the buy-in comes from like, you could talk a lot about what you should or could be doing, but the buy-in comes from actually doing it. So you have to find those easy wins early on. And then once you do that, then you can start building other things down the road. What, uh, what are some particularly important tools or systems that go along with your process? You're, you're not the first person that's talked a lot about process as being this like central job in, in content. And, and I'm wondering what, what your go-tos are. I'm, I'm a pen and paper kind of guy. Like the, the Amazon basics, I know nobody can see this, but I'm holding up my, my white legal pad here. Order the big bundle of those. Cause I go through those things like crazy. Um, that's my brain. And I, I, you know, write down everything on there and then process all that into, into single pages for myself and try to keep things organized that way. The other thing is as a company, we use Asana a lot and we do campaign planning in there and we're, tagging each other and looping people in from different, those different groups that we were talking about earlier, design, DevOps, um, digital marketing, SEO, whoever needs to be involved in a project, everybody's being, being brought in and, and we manage the majority of those large projects through Asana so that everything's sort of in one place. But for my stuff that not, like not everybody needs to see, I'm, I'm just keeping a list on a piece of paper. Um, and I, I go through it multiple times a week and just try to cross out what I've accomplished you know, make a new list. Um, that's the best system for me to get. Like, I know that's not a documented process, like what you're asking about. That's my process. But that's like, that's real and authentic. And that's like part of the day-to-day world. And and there is a tool for communicating with, with other teams, right? Like you're not flying by the seat of your pants on this. So I, it's nice to hear that people still use pencil and paper, honestly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm literally like, this is a literal pencil for people who are listening. Like I have a pencil sharpener in my drawer. I'm like nerdily sh- sharpening pencils every day. I lo- also love that it's a real pencil and not a mechanical pencil. Like, yeah, it, it really does need to be sharpened. Um, yeah. What would you say is the biggest surprise having moved from running your own own business into being like this director at, at this corporation that's got multiple subsidiaries, right? Large team structure. What, what was surprising? What was surprising? I, the, the answer, I don't know how this is going to sound, but I'm going to say this anyway. The answer is the, the pace of things is different in that when I, when I had my own business and it was just me, I had to do so many things on my own that I think that the bar I set for myself every day when I stepped into this office was that I had to do like eight to 12 things every day, right? I had to do, I had to be my own salesperson. I had to be my own project manager. I had to be my own copywriter. I had to I had to follow up on proposals. I had to write proposals. I had to and to be in a role where I only have one job, right? Like I, I mean that's not the right word, but that I have I have a title and I have a job and I have like lanes that I need to stay in. That pace of things slows down and I don't have to accomplish 12 things a day to feel successful because there are other people to rely on and there are other people who are better at things than I am. So 
I understand SEO, but I'm not the best at SEO. And we have an SEO team that I can go get answers from and get help from. And so I can collaborate on things. And so, but what that does is it slows everything down a little bit, not in like a process or like getting things done kind of way. Cause we're, we, we get things done, you know, pretty regularly and, and, and meet timelines and all those things. But for me personally, it doesn't feel as exhausting every day of like, oh, I forgot to email so-and-so about the proposal I sent last week. Like there's no more of that. And so that's what I mean by like the pace of things slows down. That was surprising to me because I think I'll try to get to my point and wrap it up. But I think I did that for so long. I did that for seven and a half years that I had this standard in my head of how much I had to get done every single day. And it's not that the standard's not still high. It's just that it's more focused. And by being more focused, I think it feels differently. It feels slower. The Content Bounce House is brought to you by Verblio, the world's friendliest content creation platform. I'm the director of content marketing at Verblio, so I'm super biased, but I think you should visit our website. Uh, go to verblio.com slash bounce and get a discount on a piece of content. Now back to the show. I wanted to ask you a little bit about measuring the success of your content. Like, and, and obviously we don't have to get into specifics, but what kind of metrics do you, do you look at in general? How do you, how do you know when a piece of content's really good? Um, I think that is a tricky question. And I think that people want to have a good answer about that. And maybe, maybe some claim they do. I don't know that anybody has a really great answer for that question. Um, I think that there, you have to look for signals and, and that's about as good as you can do sometimes. Like, I know we all want to like sit in Google analytics and be like, here's the definitive number that gives me the answer that this is the best thing I've ever done. Um, I don't think that exists. I think the best we can do is, is some sort of amalgamation of, of data and analytics and, and anecdotal data from your sales team and, you know, like looking at web traffic and things like, like there's all this stuff that's just not scientific that I think goes into some of this. And I don't, I don't remember anybody ever really saying that out loud that I've heard a lot of, but I think that that's the honest answer is like, there's, yes, there are numbers you can look at, but there's also other stuff that just goes into that. Like, um, you know, you talk to your sales team and, and find out are pieces resonating or not when you're doing nurture campaigns are people, you, you can look at open rates, right. But that tells you you have good subject lines or not. And then the next step is what are our click throughs? Well, if they're clicking through, that's great. Are we using, you know, are we tracking where clicks are going? Are we able to analyze things like that? I, I really, I pay attention. If we're talking about emails, I pay attention to click to open rates. I think that's a good signal of engagement. I think it's more interesting to me for what I'm trying to accomplish um, than a simple click through or a simple open rate. Like I, I want to know I have good subject lines that are getting opened, but at the end of the day, I also want to know if people are reading them. So I want to know of that percentage of people who actually open the email, how many of them click through. That's more important to me, I think, than, than one of those simple numbers. That that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I've heard answers to this question that are like, all I care about is conversion. And I was like that, I also care about conversion, but I think it's more nuanced than that. And, and it sounds like you're, you're generating some of that nuance by also looking at engagement and also most importantly, looking at channel specific stuff. Like when you're, if you're looking at content that was 
produced for an email, you need to look at email stats and not just a general conversion statistic in the, in the scare quotes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, obviously everybody's going to, going to talk about conversions and, and that at the end of the day is what matters and we got to drive revenue and we got to move people. But I think the more nuanced answer to that question, to your point is, are we understanding the journey that people are on and are we matching content to give them what they're looking for at specific times and specific parts of the journey? And there's no great answer to that. You make assumptions, you look for signals, you, um, you monitor performance and those things, but you know, at some point you're, you're guessing a little bit of like, okay, well they're dropping off here. So what else can we give them? What do we need to say differently? How do we need to frame this in a new way? Is an email the best method? Do they want an ebook? Should we make a video? Like, you know, and so that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about signals is it's not like, oh, the numbers drop off here. So we have to do this one thing. It's like, okay, you recognize the trend, you recognize the signal, and then you start to make assumptions about what that means. And then you try some things and that's it. Like, that's not scientific, but that's, that's the answer. It's practical. So along these lines. <laughs> Tell me about your most disappointing piece of content. Like, I feel like all content marketers have a story about this, like build something. We're just sure it was going to work, going to, going to solve all your problems. And then it just kind of tanked, like did not deliver. Yeah. I, I think I would spin your question in that to me, and this was true when I had my own business and this is true now, the most disappointing piece of content is the piece of content that doesn't go anywhere. And so. Mm. Um, what I hate to see is a bunch of people come together to create something that's really good, really good in my perspective, right? Like I haven't put it in front of anybody, but I think it's really good. And we created this thing and we, you know, the SEO team was involved in the digital team and the, we had design and we wrote it and we had editors and all the things, right. And everybody put all this effort into creating this thing. And then we don't have a clear plan for promotion or distribution or an employee leaves, a salesperson leaves and it falls off and, you know, like nobody knows it exists or whatever. And it gets put in a SharePoint folder somewhere. And then that to me is the most disappointing piece of content. Like it didn't even get a chance to perform. So it's not that it fell flat. It's not that it sucked. It's not that um, something was wrong with it. It's that we just never even gave it a chance. And I think you know, to go back to something I was talking about earlier, I'm trying to build that into part of our process and our systems that we're, when we create things, there's a real tendency to lean on the front end of that process. And who do we need to get together? And how many meetings do we need to have? And what's the brief look like? And what are we going to say? And what's the audience and the purpose and all the stuff we already talked about? The second half of that is how are we going to promote it and distribute it and get it in front of people? and I think that to me is the part that, that is so often lacking. And it, it again goes back to the thing that I talked about documenting the purpose is you've got to document the strategy for what, what channels are we going to use? How often are we going to put it out? Um, you know, we made a video this year who needs to have it in their signature of their email. Like, you know, there, there are other ways to share content. In, a, in an ongoing way. And we have to be just as thoughtful about the back end of that process as we are on the front end. It, amen. I'm, I'm like to all of that, <laughs> what, what percentage of your effort would you say goes to distribution? Like building the content versus addressing the strategy versus distrib distribution. Say if you split that pie three ways. I, I think right now the answer for me is not enough. 
um, there's always the, there's always the tendency to, to get on to the next thing. Right. And so we have this really like project oriented mindset of like, we got to get this done and then I got to get the next thing done and I got to get the next thing done. And what's the next, where's the next case study? Who are we going to talk to? What are we going to, you know, like, um, we need a nurture over here. We got to fill this gap. We, and so there's the tendency to like do the thing and move on. And that's where I'm, that's where I'm, I'm trying to build in the more thoughtful process of what, what do we need to do? How often do we need to share? And so the, the answer is not enough. The answer is what's ideal. I don't know. Maybe a third is the answer. Maybe 50% is the answer. I don't know. Obviously other people have opinions about this, but I think my inkling is that most people aren't doing it nearly enough. I mean, it's maybe getting 10% feels gracious. <laughs> like yeah. I, it's gotta be more because, because it's, it's what I was saying. Like, it's just disappointing to spend a bunch of time to, to create things, to build things that you know are helpful, that you know are good. And they just, they just sit and it's not anybody's fault, right? Like it's not, I'm not trying to blame anybody. It's just the nature of what we do. And so I think slowing down and baking that into your, even if you put it in your brief, right? Like even if there's a right. documented place where other people are saying, okay, how are we going to do this? Or what channels are we using or, or how often that would be helpful? Yeah. I, I feel like the, the repurposing is always in the back of my mind. Like I know I could use this more than one way and then executing that always feels harder. I wanted to ask you also, if you had unlimited resources, if, if there were no constraints on, on say time or money, what would you build? What, what do you think the most impressive piece of content is, or, or yeah, what would you do with all that time and money? <laughs> um, so I've had this, this dream, I'll call it a dream. Um, I think there's a world where you create really interactive, immersive content. And I don't know, I, I, in my dream, this plays well in, in B2B. Um, I don't know if it's more of a BDC play or not, but what I have in mind is every now and then the New York times does really interesting, interactive stories and there's embedded video and the pages scroll and things move and there's quotes and there's audio and there's snippets of video and there's all of these things like from a journalistic standpoint, they do these really cool stories and it's, they do a couple every year. Um, and I always bookmark them and I always come back to them, but there's like, you could read that piece a hundred different times, right? Like you could watch all the videos once another time you could come back and play all the audio and listen to people telling their version of whatever account they're trying to describe. There's the text, there's the, the, the photography of it all. Um, that is a huge lift, right? Like that is like, yeah. you need a professional photographer, you need professional audio, you need video footage, you need, you need um, a dev team who can build interactive elements. That to me is like, I would love to be a part of something like that. I've only ever seen it in like a journalistic capacity. So the New York Times is great at it. I don't know, like there's a brand somewhere someday that's gonna do something super cool and I don't know what it's gonna look like or how it's gonna play. But I have to think that that is like, that's the pinnacle. Well, well, should we all just be trying to produce like media then? Like th there's that question, like, is every company a media company? And maybe from a content perspective, we should be shooting for that. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've always thought about that idea. That idea is intriguing to me. 
there's like so many ways to unpack that of like do we need to entertain people do we need to you know do we need to tell more stories do we, like when we talk about being a media company what does that mean i think there's a little bit of that i think that the lines between b2c and b2b continue to blur and i think that we're all so used to being online at this point that our real life and our online lives blur at this point too and so there has to be some recognition that that's the case and i you know we can sit around and lament like oh things are not as um professional as they used to be or whatever but i i also think that there's just like we're all online all the time and so i don't just buy things when i'm at work or when i'm at home like those lines are constantly being <laughs> being blurred in my own life and i imagine that's the case for everybody else too so from that perspective I would say, yeah, we all have to think like media companies, but it doesn't have to be like the, I don't know, when I was a teacher, one of my favorite books to teach was Fahrenheit 451. And there was a scene in there where there's like the dancing clown and he, he can't dance fast enough to keep everyone entertained. And there's always like that aspect too of like, you know, how much of a show do you have to really put on and how much do you just need to be helpful? And I think at the end of the day, you just need to be helpful. Uh, yeah, that was that was exactly my follow up question was like, how do you balance that entertainment piece with the education? Because I think when there's like a whole search intent tangent there about like, are you fulfilling the educational need of or the, the value of the piece of content? But when, when people ask me about entertainment and education, I, I keep saying when I was in education, I had to be entertaining. Like if kids don't have the attention span, what makes you think that people online do? And so there's. Right. You need to have enough entertainment that the education like accomplishes its goal. Yeah. I think the, the trick is making sure that if you're giving people what they need when they need it, which is obviously, you know, the, the golden standard of marketing, um, there is entertainment inherent in that because they're getting what they need. And so when you're meeting people's needs and you're being helpful and you're providing content in a way that sounds like a real person wrote it and, and, you know, is I think when you're meeting people's needs, that is engaging. That is entertainment might not be the best word. Like I'm not, I'm not reading, you know, like a, a, a the latest ebook in the same way that I'm consuming stranger things season four. Right. Like, but, but they're both meeting my needs in different ways and they're both entertaining in their own ways. Yeah. I had one final question for you and that's very, it's very topical. How will your approach to content strategy change uh, if, I'm going to stick with if and not when, uh, we enter a recession? Um, I think that the most obvious answer to that question is it comes down to budgeting, right? Like that's, that's the most obvious answer to a question like that. I think in a perfect world, nothing changes because recession or no, people are still seeking services and products and it's still my job and our job on the growth engagement team to make sure that we're being found when they're looking for that. And just because there's a recession doesn't mean people stop. Um, we may have to change tactics. We may have fewer dollars to spend in certain channels. We may find better ways to promote, um, you know, more cost efficient things to do. There's always value, I think, in, in sort of tightening things up to build efficiencies and that's usually what happens. But I, from like a, from a process or philosophical perspective, I don't think anything changes. I think you, you, you keep 
creating things that are helpful. You help your sales team make sales. You help your your prospective buyers buy. You know, like f- philosophically, you keep going. Awesome. Well, uh, Chris, thank you so much for being here. If folks want to get in touch with you, uh, hear more from you, what's the what's the best way for them to find you? Oh man, I used to have websites and all these all these things to send people to. I don't have that anymore. I would say um, my work email, ccooper at evercommerce.com is probably the fastest, most efficient way to get a hold of me. But um, I'm on, I don't know, I'm on social media too, I guess. There's I there's a, a Twitter handle, El Cabra. But um, I don't even... I don't even get on Twitter anymore. It's, it's, uh, I don't know. Well, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for sharing all the, all the wisdom. Uh, so appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate taking the time to do it. Uh, this is, this has been fun. That's it for this episode of the content bounce house. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review if you haven't already. And thank you so much for listening.